Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Save the World, World! was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan in December 2016. In our first story, Anne Bonnie's mistake with a bag of crickets on live television ended up helping the local zoo she was helping to promote. So the red light went on, and the host started the introduction. We had worked really hard to get permission to bring Buzz here, and now he was alert and clicking his beak softly, perhaps a little bit nervous about being on live television. A lot was riding on this little roadrunner. At the time, I lived in Tucson, Arizona, and I worked for a zoo that specialized in the Sonoran Desert. Uh, We had mountain lions and mountain goats and snakes and birds and all kinds of native species of the Sonoran Desert, and paths through acres of natural habitat so people could walk through and see all the animals. They also did a lot of important research on animal behavior and uh, some preservation of endangered species. So they did some really great work. I was a trainer at the time of the native or the resident birds of prey. We had owls and falcons and hawks and our little roadrunner. And it was a really, really great place. But unfortunately, uh, ticket sales and uh, donations and memberships and stuff had been dwindling. And so the zoo was in a little bit of trouble. Now, somebody from the local news station approached my boss, Sue, to come and bring some animals on the morning news, which we thought was great. We had some gorgeous and very well-trained birds who were used to being around the zoo guests, um, so they were really comfortable around people. We thought they'd be a great promotion for the zoo and what the good work that they were doing, but the zoo director just shut us down. They didn't want to make our birds into circus acts. They didn't want, they wanted to protect the birds, which we totally understood, except that we had spent considerable time and effort training these animals to be comfortable around people, so we were confident that we could display them in a way that was respectful and didn't stress them out too much. Um, So my boss, Sue, was unrelenting, and she didn't quit until finally the zoo director said, fine, gave us permission, and we could try it with just one bird. So we decided to take Buzz, our little roadrunner. Now, he had come to the zoo as a young animal. Um, He'd been injured and rehabilitated, but couldn't be released back into the wild because he was too used to people. So um, his story was a good illustration of the important work that the zoo was doing. He was also very well-trained and very reliable, and um, he, was, he was fun. Like, everybody that came to the zoo really liked him because of his quick and quirky movements. He was a little silly, and he had really pretty feathers. Um, so, but also because of Wiley Coyote's arch nemesis on the cartoons, a lot of people know about roadrunners, but they don't know what a real roadrunner actually looks like. So we figured he was a great choice to take on TV. So there we were, we're on live TV. I reached down to check my stash of live crickets that I had in my fanny pack. Um, Crickets are a staple of a roadrunner diet and a really nice little reward. I also had his favorite treat, a half a mouse. Now I was gonna bring the front half, but I decided to take the back half with the tail because he preferred the feeling of the tail because it felt like a snake when he was gobbling it down. So I took the back half. So I grabbed a cricket out of my pouch and zipped it up carefully and I was ready to bring our little TV star out into the spotlight. I bent over, and I opened the cage, and I showed him the cricket, and he walked out and stopped, lengthening his neck to get a good look around the studio. The blue, white, and orange feathers behind his eye just glowed under the lights. 
The camera zoomed in on Buzz, and Buzz zoomed in on my cricket, and he ate it. I grabbed, unzipped my pouch, grabbed two more crickets out, zipped it back up, took a step back, showed it to him. He followed me and grabbed the cricket. So while the interview was going on with Sue and the TV host, I was going to show natural behaviors of the Roadrunner. So I took a cricket, and I held it about three feet in the air, and he flew up and grabbed it just like he would a bug in the wild. So then I wanted to show him running, because he's a roadrunner. And so I walked across the set, opened my pouch, grabbed a cricket, turned around, showed it to him, and he ran across the stage, just like a roadrunner does, and grabbed the cricket and ate it down. This was going beautifully. The interview was going well. Sue was hitting all her interview points about the zoo and the roadrunners and all that stuff. And Buzz seemed comfortable. He was cooperating. So it was going really well. And then all of a sudden, Buzz snapped his head to the right and took off running off the set, past the cameras, and grabbed something off the floor and ate it. As soon as he gobbled that down, he grabbed something else and ate that too. Now, I had no idea what he was eating, but I knew <laughs> I needed to regain control of the situation pretty quickly. So I reached down to unzip my pouch and realized it was already unzipped. <laughs> and it was empty. And there were crickets hopping everywhere. <laughs> the camera followed Buzz as he grabbed another cricket about a few feet away. Buzz was now locked into hunting mode. He was having the time of his life with an all-you-can-eat buffet right there on live television. <laughs> I bent down and scooped up a cricket, tried to get his attention, and he glanced over at me for a sec, but then he saw some movement on the weatherman's chair and decided to jump up and eat that cricket instead. The host chuckled and made a little joke about how comfortable little Buzz seemed on camera. <laughs> and Sue blithely covered for our little rogue by saying something about natural roadrunner behavior or something. But I could tell by her voice that she was a little nervous. Meanwhile, I was panicking. I had no idea how many bugs had come out of my pouch. You, probably when he was done, he would get bored. Um, but I didn't know whether the station exterminator had been there anytime soon. And so I could be in real trouble here. As the interview started to wind down, Buzz saw another cricket on the desk and jumped up on the desk and then started cocking and jerking his head around looking for more meaty morsels. And it was that moment that I realized and remembered that I had the piece de resistance in my pocket, the half a mouse. Now, Buzz was having such a good time, I wasn't sure that was going to get his attention, but it was really kind of all I had. So I grabbed the meat by the tail and dangled it where he could see it hoping that the seductive movement and the white fur would get his attention. As soon as he glanced over, I spun the mouse butt around and then flung it into the cage, and it hit the back wall with a wet thunk, and Buzz went flying in. I calmly but quickly closed the door and nonchalantly stepped back, feeling the satisfying crunch of a cricket under my heel. <laughs> Sue and I didn't say anything to, to each other until we were in the safety of the car. Sue glanced over at me, and that was all it took. I dissolved head in hands, composure gone, and bellowed, I'm so sorry. She burst out laughing and put her hand on my shoulder and just calmly said, it was good TV. <laughs> so our crazy cricket debacle apparently had quite a stir in the community. The zoo director told us that ticket sales and donations and memberships had almost doubled, and they attributed it a lot to Buzz's television debut. 
The TV station loved it too. They invited us back a lot to bring other birds on to the morning news. And the zoo administration gave us immediate approval and even encouragement to go. But for future appearances, we opted to take one of the hawks or an owl or a falcon tethered to the glove and dead prey <laughs> to avoid any more scene-stealing snacks. And as for Buzz, he seemed unaffected by all the throngs of guests coming in to uh, see the real Roadrunner in real life. He, um, he settled back into his normal routine, educating and entertaining people, seemingly unaware that he saved the zoo, who may have saved him and a lot of his desert friends. Thank you. <laughs> In our next story, Mel Blevins tells us about how getting her period, that is, bleeding and not dying, led her to think that maybe, just maybe, she was invincible. I was 11 when it happened, and I remember exactly where I was when I found it. I was riding the bus, and my forehead was pressed against the cold window. It was an icy, snowy February day. And I was riding the, ho the bus home from school and I had to stay over because I was comparing comic books with the uh, classroom boys. It was two months after Christmas and my mother had failed to listen that I had asked for Spider-Man books and not Superman books, uh, which was a real bummer to me because those were obviously my favorite. I always uh, drew on the bus, too. I would draw um, Spider-Man. I enjoyed how I could control the movements of the pictures and the art. And I had a really tough childhood growing up because uh, my parents were all over the place. And art allowed me to control the situation. I could have him saving orphans. I could have him saving cats out of trees. And Spider-Man was always kind of a hero to me because he um, allowed a normal person to become something so great. When I got off the bus, I went straight to my room. And it was then where I found it when I stood, I took off my pants and I realized that I'd started my period. <laughs> I wasn't nervous, I was excited. <laughs> because just like Spider-Man, I had something terrible happen to me and now I can make the best of the situation. <laughs> I waited a couple minutes to uh, realize what exactly was going on. And just like Spider-Man, I did not tell my Aunt May. I did not tell my mother. I kept it a secret to see if I would die the next morning. <laughs> In the meantime, I made a list of everything that I wanted to do before I died. <laughs> I gave my sister away my, uh, my guitar and my uh, harmonica, my notebooks, my sketchbooks. I gave my best friend all of my journals. And if you have an 11-year-old child or have seen 11-year-olds or have been an 11-year-old yourself, you know that they read that. <laughs> that being said, that was how she found out that I was gay and that I had a crush on her. Oh. It was fine. We dated five years later. <laughs> I gave my stepbrother my planes and my trains and my cars. I gave him everything that I couldn't think to give anybody else. After that, I realized that all the self-doubt had gone. I wasn't nervous anymore. I had given away everything that an 11-year-old could love. So I decided to conquer the biggest hill in the town where I grew up, the largest hill that goes right over the bridge over the Ohio River in Cincinnati. It was, a, it was about 200 feet tall at about a 
oh, what felt like an impossible angle of slope. And I put on my rollerblades. I was feeling brave. I could bleed and not die. So I put on my rollerblades and I got to the top of the hill and I went down backwards. I made it about 50 feet, obviously, before I crashed into a, a, a recycling bin. Never in, a, in my life has a piece of trash saved my life before. I went home and I told my mom and my mom said, I don't know what has gotten into you. Grace is calling me with questions about your journals. <laughs> your sister is in there trying to learn how to play guitar and she's tone deaf. I, I'm not sure what's going on. And then that was when I told her. And I'm 24 years old and I can still hear the laughing of my mother. <laughs> she sat me down and she took out a pen and a paper and she drew what looked like to be a very oddly shaped vagina. And inside, she put flowers in it because my body is a garden, she went on to explain. <laughs> and how I was the gardener. And I, <laughs> and I got to choose which rose and which pansy came inside. <laughs> so there I sat, learning about flowers. I had so many questions just about that. I think that's part of the reason why today I am now a lesbian, because after <laughs> having to prune my bush, <laughs> I think definitely that had something to do with it. <laughs> so I was still feeling very, very heroic and very brave. My mother had just bought 12 gallons of paint, and she was going to redo the entire house, because we were getting ready to move to Kentucky. My mother uh, was in the kitchen making dinner and I dragged out all 12 gallons of paint to the roof of my house. There I opened up the lids one by one and I tossed them into the yard, free willing in every direction. My mother comes out to call me, to, to call me for dinner and she says, Mel, it's <gasps> And I said, Mom, I call this Jardin, because my body is a garden. <laughs> and I'm not entirely sure which one still rings louder to this day, the screams or the laughter. But being able to channel that, that, that bravery that 11-year-old me had to willing to defy my mother to try to, to try to go down the biggest hill in Cincinnati carried me through the rest of my career. It, it allowed me to join the Peace Corps. It allowed me to go to Haiti. It allowed me to, do, to move to Traverse City in just my Buick. You don't have to change everybody's world. You just have to change someone's. Thank you. If you're going to stump for a campaign, Brad Lystra explains in our next story, you had better understand what the community you're visiting is all about. So I'll never forget where I was the night Governor Dean screamed his head off on stage, giving a concession speech 
during, uh, after losing the Iowa caucus because I, I worked for him. I was watching CNN or MSNBC or something like that in the Michigan State headquarters of Howard Dean um, as this event took place. And I remember thinking, oh my God, this is going to be a disaster. <laughs> Up until that point, Howard Dean had done fantastically well. And he had actually broken records in terms of having a great campaign infrastructure. He had made, and this is, we're going back like 12 years here. This is 2004. So at the time, he had made $50 million uh, in the, during the primary caucus season, which was a record haul for any presidential candidate at that point during the democratic process. And he had created a platform that kind of pitted him in stark contrast to all the other Democrats who were running for office at that time, whose voting records were very similar to the Republican who was going to be running for office. So he was, the campaign was up and doing fantastically until that fateful night when he screamed on stage. And after that moment, things began to unravel very quickly. Uh, we had leads in the polls in just about every other state other than Iowa at that point. And most importantly, we had like a 25 or I think it was a 26 point lead in New Hampshire, which as anybody knows, if you can win Iowa or New Hampshire, you're kind of on the way to becoming the nominee. And within about 48 hours, our 26 point lead in New Hampshire, after the scream turned into maybe a 10 or 15 point deficit. So it was really a, a historic collapse in presidential polling numbers. And I guess, you know, like they say in Hollywood, the show still must go on. And this is kind of what this is about because Michigan was about two or three weeks after that Iowa caucus. And we all had a job to do and we all had to keep moving forward and trying to get as many votes as you could for a candidate whose campaign was in complete free fall and was falling apart. And one of the things the campaign had put together is we were gonna do um, a tour of black churches in Detroit just a day or two in February before the Michigan caucus. And Al Gore, who had endorsed Governor Dean about two months prior, was gonna come in and do this tour and give a stump speech and kind of whip up the vote and get people to get out in the Detroit area and vote for the governor. It was supposed to be a coronation of sorts because all the polls all throughout the country were so high. But now it was something much different. It was, there weren't gonna be as many people there. Um, we weren't gonna get the votes but we were still kind of going through the motions of a, what was a campaign in free fall. This, I was about 24 at the time. I was a pretty young guy working on the campaign and it was one of the first campaigns I'd ever worked on. So I was a little bit surprised when our campaign manager asked if I wanted to go be a part of the motorcade with Vice President Gore. And I really wanted to get out of the office. I was like, absolutely, like, <laughs> let me, let's go drive around Detroit. I really couldn't think of anything better to do. So the campaign manager said, that's great. Meet me in the office in the morning. You and I will drive together. And um, there's one thing I need to do. The Gore people would like you to get a couple bottles of Perrier. He's going to be speaking. He's going to need to stay hydrated. He's going to need to get some water. Could you pick up some Perrier when you go home tonight and bring it into the office next morning? I was like, fine. He's going to be speaking. You know, you don't want to get a dry mouth and all that. That, makes, that seemed to make sense to me. So we... <laughs> So I show up with my Perrier in the, in, the, in the car in the morning, and we catch up with the vice president's motorcade 
at the first church. And the thing I remember from the first church we go to, it's a little bit out in the suburbs. It's actually in a fairly nice neighborhood outside of Detroit. And the vice president's handler comes out, and he comes up to our car. And I actually don't go into the first church. But he says that just in case we need to switch cars and the vice president needs to sit in our car, he wanted me to get out of the car, and he wanted to move the seat back because the vice president's a pretty tall guy. He, well, the former vice president, but he's like in six foot range or so, and he wanted to make sure there was enough leg room for the vice president so that if he did have to sit in our car, it would be fine. And I, that seemed fine to me, that seemed reasonable. Um, perhaps it was a little bit of a security detail, maybe he just wanted to check out all the cars that were gonna be driving that day as we did our tour. He goes into the first church and gives his speech and we're on our way to the second church. Now the second church is in a very, very rough neighborhood in Detroit. And actually, well, it's definitely a church, and, but it's not, it's not what most people traditionally think of a church. It's actually in what appears to be a strip mall that had gone bankrupt <laughs> and had been hollowed out. And there had been folding chairs that had been put up and it was an incredibly rough neighborhood. You know, this is inner city Detroit. Um, a lot of the buildings around it are burnt down and collapsing and falling apart. And a lot of the factories are shuttered up and there's really no businesses in this area. And I remember going to the second church and the first thing I see in this in falling apart neighborhood is there's a Bentley parked right in front of the front door. The, the cheapest Bentley you can buy is $200,000. And I turn to the, the campaign manager, who's, who I'm driving with, Darren, who's a uh, kind of a Pennsylvania coal mining Democrat. And I, I'm like, Darren, whose Bentley is this? And he goes, that's the pastor's. <laughs> and I'm not like the most religious person, but I'm fairly certain that Jesus was like a carpenter or maybe a stone worker, <laughs> and I, he didn't drive a Bentley, <laughs> but he also like didn't drive a Bentley and talk to people in one of the poorest neighborhoods in the country at the same time. So I'll just leave it at that. That was, I thought it was kind of it was a surprising twist of events. And we walk into the church. And I quickly realized, sort of realized, how th this had come to be in terms of the amount of money because they were putting on an amazing show in this church. They had like a six or seven piece jazz soul band. There were people dancing in the aisles. There's probably one or 200 people there. And the pastor, to, uh, to be honest, was, he, he reminded me of James Brown in terms of his presentation. And we sat in the back, and I'd never been in an atmosphere like this. It kind of reminded me of like a modern kind of Blues Brothers scene when Dan Aykroyd and Jim Belushi are dancing with the nuns. Um, so we, we sit in the back, and I remember thinking to myself, it's like, wow, like this is a kind of a different atmosphere for a vice president in a lot of ways. I wonder how he's going to do on stage. And he gets up there to give his speech, and he's kind of does some dancing to the music, and he actually does some jazz hands, which, <laughs> to be fair, I thought didn't quite fit in. It wasn't, you know, but 
so be it. We, we go from that church, and we're on our way to the third church now. And it's about a 20-minute drive across downtown Detroit. And we're kind of running behind schedule, and we need to get there. It's probably about 11, 11.30 in the morning, but approaching noontime. And it's February, and it's snowy, and it's taking us a while to get there. And all of a sudden, our, our procession of cars stops in downtown Detroit. And it wasn't on schedule. We weren't really supposed to stop. And we are kind of in one of those areas of Detroit again where you have brown fields and abandoned lots and shuttered up buildings everywhere. And half the homes you see are probably burnt down to the ground. And the handler, vice president's handler, gets out of the car and comes up, up to our car and knocks on our window. And we roll down the window, and Darren, the camp, my campaign manager, is like, what do they want? Like, we shouldn't be stopping. We have to get there. We're going to be late. And the handler says, the vice president would really like to get a chicken salad sandwich. <laughs> do you guys think we could, you, could, you could go get him a chicken salad sandwich? Now, a chicken salad sandwich is not the most ridiculous thing on earth, but in this neighborhood, <laughs> there is no chicken salad sandwich. <laughs> Anybody from Michigan who's been in the Southeast Michigan knows that in some of these neighborhoods, there might not be a chicken salad sandwich for 20 square miles, and the sheer idea of going to get one is absolutely impossible. Now, I'm 24. And I'm thinking, OK, like, wow, this is like kind of impossible. But we could try. That's what I'm thinking in my head. Because it's the vice president. But I also know I'm going to yield to the campaign manager and see what he has to say about this. And I look over at Darren and say, do you want to go get a chicken salad sandwich? <laughs> and Darren, never get, forget this. He like grabs the steering wheel like he's going to murder it. And he turns to the vice president's hand and he says, absolutely not. Get in the car and get to the church. And the vice president's handler walks up to the car and we're on our way to the third church where the vice president goes in and gives his speech. And he comes out and we give him his Perrier. And that's the end of the day. Now, I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but I guess what I'm feeling like is I kind of understand why Dean screamed. And I understand why my campaign, campaign manager yelled at the governor's assistant, I mean, at the vice president's assistant. Because sometimes things, things go really wrong. And sometimes you find yourself, through no fault of your own, through no association hanging out with a pastor with a $200,000 Bentley preaching to some of the poorest people on earth. And sometimes you have people associated with your campaign who have a penchant for gourmet foods and sparkling water while they're touring around the ghettos of Detroit. And sometimes your candidates lose composure on stage and start yelling. And I guess that can happen. Things can go wrong. And I guess that's how I feel about why he screamed. I guess I understand it now. So thank you very much.
In the next story, from Matt Soderquist, this self-described former hippie gets involved with a veteran support group and ends up with a whole new family. So single-digit temperatures punched us in the face as soon as we got off the bus. We'd arrived at the mall in Washington, D.C., and there was just a sea of people as far as I could see. Some of them were holding signs that said, there's no W in peace. And drop bush, not bombs. If you can imagine the Arctic version of the war protest on Forrest Gump, that's what it was. We even had the same music. We even had the guy that was born on the 4th of July. One of my brothers was already in the Marines. He was a drill instructor at Paris Island. If you could think of Full Metal Jacket and Sergeant Hartman, the drill instructor, my brother Ken made him look like a kindergarten teacher. After 9-11, my other brother David joined the Navy. I went to a peace protest, or a war protest. On the bus ride to DC, I was sitting next to this guy who was wearing a suit, which was kind of odd and you know much different than the vast majority of us on the bus. But I befriended him, and he said that he was the president of the Student Democratic Party, and that he had been in communication with the Reverend Jesse Jackson, and that after Jesse Jackson was done speaking, he would be marching with the Reverend, and if I wanted to join, to just stand next to the stage. So Jesse Jackson took the stage and he said, the world is cold, but our hearts are warm from the fire of peace in our bellies. It's time to fight for peace. And I just kind of got goosebumps and I was moved. And Jesse Jackson came down off of the stage, and I'm like, I don't care if he has a love child. <laughs> I mean, it's not Al Sharpton, but you know, it's Jesse Jackson. So these tens of thousands of protesters had this brilliant idea that we would not only protest the war in Iraq, but that we would also march down to the Navy Yard. And because President Bush hadn't found any weapons of mass destruction yet, we would find them. And we would demand that the Navy show us their weapons of mass destruction. I know you're not really surprised that they told us to get real. <laughs> Two months later, I listened to George Bush declare war in Iraq, sitting at work at about 8 o'clock at night, and a little piece of me died. And my faith in humanity seemed kind of foolish. Who was I to think that a couple of 100,000 people or protesters could sway the president's decision? 
But a decade later, in 2012, 295 U.S. soldiers died in Afghanistan. 350 of them, though, took their own lives. It was the first time ever that there was more active duty suicides than there were actually combat-related deaths. So if you think about it kind of crazily, it was like statistically more dangerous to be an active duty soldier in the United States than to be in Afghanistan in the shit. One of those people that committed suicide was my brother. He hadn't been on active duty for years, but he struggled when he got out of the Marines. When he died, I, I felt, I, to tell you the fucking truth, I didn't feel anything. The last time I'd seen Kenny was about two years prior at my own dad's funeral. About a half a decade of social work left my heart about as cold as my toes were on that day in Washington, D.C. Running became my therapy. Thumbing through Runner's World one day, I seen this group of guys wearing these red shirts that said Team RWB carrying a flag. The title of the story was Running Back from Hell, and it chronicled some OEF, OIF veterans that had come back and had struggled and got involved with the team, began running, started to heal, started what we call post-traumatic growth. As a civilian, I wasn't sure if I could join the team, let alone take on a leadership role. But if tossing a red shirt on and going for a run was gonna inspire some veterans to get out and get active, then I was all for it. The nearest chapter to us was Ann Arbor. And a month later, again, in single-digit temperatures, I lined up with 70 of our members at the Big House 5K. And over three miles through downtown Ann Arbor, I ran shoulder to shoulder with some guys who opened up the war in Iraq. A lot of them who, when I first showed up, were just strangers, became friends. And soon a lot of those friends would become family. Now the veteran members of our group, when they found out I was a civilian, would get excited. I was always really nervous and kind of self-conscious about it. But I found that they were harder on each other than non-service members. Marines would make fun of the Army. Army would make fun of the Air Force and the Navy. Everybody would make fun of the Coast Guard. <laughs> but more than anything, they were tough on themselves. Our leadership director, Joe Quinn, he calls it one downing. So the civilian member of the team doesn't feel worthy because they've never served. The veteran doesn't feel worthy because they were never deployed. The guy who was deployed twice to Iraq and Afghanistan doesn't feel worthy because he knows a guy who was deployed six times. The guy who was deployed six times doesn't feel worthy because he knows a guy who lost his arm. The guy who lost his arm knows somebody who lost his arms and his legs. And everybody knows somebody that didn't come back. We all end up feeling isolated and unworthy. But being a part of the team, experiencing 
shared hardships, even though it wasn't combat in Iraq, but it was fighting to finish a marathon. We had shared experiences. We had shared purpose. And it did the opposite. Our team now has 100,000 members. This fall, we ran a single flag from Redmond, Washington, all the way across the country to Tampa, Florida. Over 60 days from September 11th to November 11th, single person by single person, we carried that flag 4,216 miles. 8,000 of us. And I was invited to run on the last day, Veterans Day. After high school, I'd lost touch with my brother David. I knew he'd went to the Navy. He got out after six years, but her parents had divorced and I lost touch. He lived in Florida, but I wasn't sure where. So I told him I was coming to Tampa for the Old Glory Relay. He said, that he, said he lived about 10 minutes from the finish line. He brought his son out. We laughed at how different our lives had been over the past 19 years. We thought it kind of ironic how the one who went to the war protest got involved with a veterans group, which is how then we both came back together. I lost one brother because of the war, but I've gained about 100,000 by joining the team. Thank you. Next, Joe Page tells us about how losing her teaching job and looking for new meaning in life led her to become a purveyor of purple plates. Way to go, JoLynn. You can do it, girl. Be the miracle. In the spring of 2002, 14 years ago, and the spring following 9-11, I lost my teaching job. I had been a writing and French teacher for a number of years. I had had tenure in two districts in this state. And when I started off teaching, I thought I would always be a teacher. I loved it. I taught middle school, and I still loved it. <laughs> My position was cut, along with several others on the staff, due to budget constraints. And French was a language that few students were finding practical to study. And creative writing, my specialty area, was losing its place in schedules. It was tragic. It was a tragic event to me because teaching wasn't just a career. It was a calling. I came from a teacher tribe. My parents were both teachers. Dad was an elementary school teacher, and Mom, with the name of Mrs. Tree, affectionately pronounced Mrs. Twee by her students. She was a kindergarten teacher. Even though I knew that my layoff was imminent, 
the administration made it clear weeks ahead of the actual deed, it was a tremendous blow. It was a blow to my ego, and it was a blow to my family's economic standing. I had carried all of my family of four's health benefits and had brought in a decent salary, something we all know is hard to come by anywhere, let alone in northern Michigan. And it meant hitting the reset button on my life. One of the avenues I pursued as a new career path was writing. I started doing freelance writing, and one of the first pieces I wrote was for a local woman's magazine. I decided to write about a tradition we had in our family which involved placing a special purple-colored plate on the table at one of our family members' place setting. Each family member would take turns saying what they loved and appreciated about the person who had the purple plate that night. This one simple idea, which actually came from my mother, had a wonderfully positive effect on our young family, as you can imagine. I was really surprised by how much continuous and positive feedback I got from this one little article. So an inspiration came to me. Believe it or not, it came to me while lying in the dead man's pose on a purple yoga mat at the end of a Bikram yoga class. My inspiration? I'm going to encourage people to, to focus on telling each other what they love and appreciate about each other, and I'm going to do it by selling purple plates. In retrospect, it was a kooky concept. <laughs> as well-meaning as it was, but at the time, I was completely consumed by this project. It gave me purpose. And it helped me honor both of my parents' memories. Both they died very young. Since the time I was 17, I was gifted with the understanding that life is so short and death can come out of nowhere. My father was killed in a car accident when he was 42. And my mother died of ovarian cancer at the age of 58. These losses helped form who I am and have allowed me to really embrace the urgency of loving the people around you while they're with you. These experiences were the impetus behind my passion for the Purple Plate venture. So I set out to research where I could buy the most durable, affordable plates possible and insisted that they be made in a place that had fair labor practices. I didn't want fancy fluff because my purple plate needed to be used on a regular basis. I settled on a place and they made me these beautiful purple plates with the words, be the miracle, inscribed on the outer edge. I bought 1,500 of them. Can you imagine 1,500? <laughs> Hundred plates coming to the garage of a little Leelanau County home in the middle of winter on a truck all the way from the East Coast. Well, that's what happened. <laughs> and being laid off, people would ask me, Joe Lynn, what are you doing now? And I'd say, oh, I'm selling purple plates. 
purple plate lady. <laughs> Needless to say, while some were inspired, many thought I was off my rocker. <laughs> I came up with an insert called the, the story of the purple plate and another that had ways to praise others. And here's part of what I wrote to accompany the plate. It says, why be the miracle? Because you are the miracle. And the miracle is love. When we shift our procession, perceptions from fear, which we know there's rampant amount of that, to love, that is a miracle. Our purpose in the world is to find the love that is within us and express it. Our only job is to see the truth about ourselves and about each other, and that truth is that we are lovable and capable of loving. Most people do not get enough love in their life, and they are forever thirsting for it. That is why we need to be the miracle. By regularly getting into the habit of expressing our love and appreciation for each other, we are expressing the miracle within us. Here are some tips to use a plate, be it purple or any other color from here on. Be vigilant about keeping this activity positive. Sometimes when people get uncomfortable with expressing feelings or hearing other people express feelings, they start to joke around or start teasing. Be careful not to let this be the habit. People may often scoff at doing this activity because it's outside their comfort zone. Take the lead and make it happen. If necessary, be the first guinea pig. Remember, feelings are never right or wrong. They just are. So be non-judgmental with people and yourself. Your simple positive words of appreciation and love are among the most important gifts you can give another person. Let some time pass for a person to share their thoughts. There is beauty in the pauses in life. You'll be amazed at how simple and meaningful this activity is. And I'll, sh I'll end with just saying, I had a, a, a woman who told me that she did buy the purple plate, and they shared it at a Christmas event, actually. Uh, they had a young man, there, her, it was her nephew, who was 17, who came to the event, and he had been suicidal. Luckily, he had told people in his close family circle that he, what he was thinking of. Every family member, she told me, he got the purple plate that Christmas. And every family member, of which there were many in the room, stood up and told that young man what they loved about him. And that man straightened out, and he did not commit suicide. I'm telling you, your words mean a lot. So I no longer sell purple plates. <laughs> All of them are gone. And I realized along the way that nobody really needs a purple plate. They can use any plate, really, or any prop. The important thing is to start. So join me. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs>
In the final story, Janelle Bowers learns what possibilities there are in community development when her group tries to take back the local park from junkies so that families could enjoy it again. So, um, when I was 23, I was totally a drug addict, right? I think many people have heard this story. But somehow, I was like, I'm gonna help. I wanna help. And I was kind of vanquishing in college. Like, I didn't know what I was doing. And I was studying public health, and um, which is funny, like, in general, that I was a junkie was studying public health, but whatever. So I, f I met this person that, that worked, I actually, I met a medical student who would take this medical RV out to this neighborhood in a, a neighborhood ca called the Alkali Flat. And they would take this medical van out there with a bunch of volunteers and we would go to all the homeless people and the prostitutes and vagrancy hotels. And we would find all the junkies and like at-risk people that we could find. And we would sit and we would talk to them and just find out what their needs were. Like, do you have an abscess that you need treated? Cool, come and we'll treat it for you. Do you need some clean needles? Great, we'll give you clean needles. You need, you need pregnant pregnancy testing? Awesome, we'll do that for you. Do you wanna get into treatment? No? Okay, well if you ever decide that you do, here's our card and we'll get a hold of you. So what we discovered is that we just got to sit and listen to these people's stories and that free of judgment, people's shame was able to be melted away, right? We were able to just sit and listen to people's stories and underneath of that, we found that the people were good-hearted and they, they had had lives that you couldn't imagine. And that at the end of the day, they did know when to make good decisions for themselves, but they needed to be allowed to do that. And while I was doing this in this neighborhood, I became fascinated with it because it was like, like every public park was overrun with vagrancy. Um, there were four homeless shelters, but then there were like families, you know, just like regular working class families. And it just so happened that I had another friend who was doing a, a graduate program um, in community development. And her and her graduate um, associates started a nonprofit called Alchemist. And they were doing some community visioning in this particular neighborhood. And I was fascinated, like I was totally hooked by this community. And so they invited me to come to these community visioning meetings. And what I found was it was the same exact thing as these meetings we had with junkies and prostitutes. It was people facilitating a conversation where we actually got to sit and hear, like, what is it that you need? We don't want to come in here as white working class people and say, your neighborhood's all fucked here's how we are going to fix it for you. But we sat there and we offered a framework to be able to have a conversation. And this was back in 2005, 2006, and people weren't talking about food deserts back then, um, other than people that were living in them, right? And so through these community visioning meetings, what we discovered is that these working families, they didn't have access to safe public spaces, which we, we already knew, but we didn't know if they cared about that. We discovered that that was a big issue. They didn't have access to reliable public transportation. And they didn't have access to food. This neighborhood was maybe seven blocks away from, this was in Sacramento, California, so seven blocks away from the California State Capitol. So it was this extreme wealth juxtaposed with this extreme poverty. 
and there was one farmer's market that happened, but it was there to service the, the capital workers. So it was open from noon to three every day, or twice a week. But it didn't help the working families. And, and a grocery store that's three miles away is a huge hindrance when you have to take small children through a bad neighborhood on unreliable transportation to get to a grocery store that you now have to get back to and still maybe you're working two or three jobs. So I was like blown away, just sitting there listening to these conversations and seeing that something that maybe could be done about it. And so I decided to like volunteer. Um, and I, I didn't like nothing. I like, they were throwing an event and I like called a Trader Joe's and they gave us some wine and that was all that I did. But um, the people on the board, they really got to this place where they needed to develop a project, right? We needed to have something in place. And so they came to me and they said, you know what, you seem like you have some gusto and I like didn't know anything so they knew they could probably pay me nothing too. They said, how about this? I know you don't know anything, but we wanna take you to take all this information from these community visioning projects and we want you to figure out a project to develop it and then do it in six months. And so I sat down with all this paperwork and I said, you know, we have these farmers that are right here. They go home, they throw away all this food. So we developed this urban urban farm stand, which is essentially like we got these farmers to just donate food to us. We brought it for really low cost to this low-income neighborhood. And I dug in. Like, I was fearless. And so I went to all the council members and got them to give me money. And I figured out these weird permits because I wanted to sell produce that wasn't my produce, but I didn't have a food license, but it was in a public park, which was like a weird thing, and it wasn't really a farmer's market. So we figured out all that bureaucracy, and then, like, I wasn't afraid of the junkies, right? Because I was kind of one. And so I just went and talked to the junkies, and I was like, hey, man, we're going to have some families here. Like, you're cool to stay. Just, like, don't shoot up while they're here. Cool? Like, just, <laughs> you can stay. You're welcome. You're part of the neighborhood, too. Just, you know, kids and stuff. We talked to the homeless shelters. We did outreach. And we showed up there the first day. And what I found was that that public park not only were there no junkies there, but it was clean. They had cleaned it. They had gone and cleaned that park up. And the community came out in droves for the first time since I had ever seen it, and I had been living in the area for five years. There were families. There were little kids playing in a park where little kids are supposed to play. And there were neighbors coming out talking to one another. And people came out from the neighborhood and they said, hey, so I make these paintings and I never have anywhere to sell them. Do you think I could sell them here? Somebody else came out and said, I make some soap. Like, could I sell my soap here? And nonprofits came, the Boys and the Girls Club, Club came and they said, can we, can we set up a booth here? Because we have this park back one night a week. And we did it and it was huge and it was successful. And within six, because I didn't, I didn't know anything. I didn't know nonprofits were like supposed to run on grant funding. So I just like ran it like a business. And it got in the, into the black within six weeks. And we, what we were able to find is that when we were approaching this community honestly and meeting the needs that they actually needed to have met and listening to them, that everybody respected it. Everybody welcomed it. Musicians started coming out and just playing. Like they would just play. And somebody one time brought a bounce house. They like just showed up with a bounce house. <laughs> there were all these little kids playing in a bounce house. And it, at the end of all of that, 
I was able to actually, I figured out like, oh, there are grants for this kind of stuff, right? <laughs> so I wrote a grant and the project got developed and Alchemist is alive and well and they've replicated the project in six or seven neighborhoods and they've written a manual to do it across California and that was almost 10 years ago. But the point is, I don't, I don't think I say anything. I was like a 24-year-old kid sort of bumbling through what seemed like an opportunity. But what I did discover is that when you put safe public spaces and community and food and really listening to what people's needs are, we can help fix something, right? Thank you. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to our venue sponsor, The Workshop Brewing Company. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Join us next month for Two Bedroom, Two Bath, Roommate Stories. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 